This week on the Really Useful Podcast, is the EU about to force Apple to allow sideloaded apps? We take a look at a 3D printed portal turret and the Windows 11 Easter egg cog. It's quite amusing. Let's also look at the Microsoft Bing source code leak and all the usual tips, tricks and recommendations from us. Welcome to the show. My name is Christian Colley and with me is Ben Stegner. How are you doing, Ben? Hello, I am doing good. Uh, I don't think I have any exciting personal news like I had the past few weeks. No new <laughs> computer or anything like that. We've got a bit of tech news to bring to you and this has just happened today. So it's kind of interesting and it's not going to necessarily affect people in the US, although it might the way these things turn out. Uh, for instance, the uh, GDPR rule that the European Union introduced a few years ago, that's kind of affected people in the US who run websites and have to, uh, or anyone in the US who goes to a European website, they have to, uh, that website has to um, do the GDPR thing. The EU is planning to force Apple to allow sideloading of apps. Now at the moment, that's not possible unless your app is, uh, unless your iPhone is jailbroken. But the European Parliament has announced that it is agreed with the European Council on text for the what they're calling the Digital Markets Act, which would require, according to Games Industry Biz, uh, companies operating core platform services like social networks and search engines to abide by rules mandating interoperability and more open platforms. Now, as you may know, if you have an Android, you can install apps without going to the Play Store or uh, the Amazon Store. There's a way of getting apps onto your phone which is called sideloading. Um, ben, what do you think about this? Because you, you have an iPhone, don't you? And you've moved to I iPhone do. from from Android. I do, yeah. I moved a couple of years ago. Um, also reading the text of this bill, it's interesting, or the, this article about the bill, it's interesting to me because there's actually a bill in the US that's making its way through, uh, I think, the Senate right now that is kind of similar, uh, has some similar wording. Um, it says that, let's see. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the bill would require users to be able to choose their preferred browser or virtual assistant and ensure their data can only be combined from different apps for advertising if the user explicitly asks for it. Um, okay. A month or two ago here, Google sent an email to like small business owners saying, you know, if this bill goes through, then we'll have to like break up features where like your business won't appear on Google search, um, that type of stuff. So it sounds like there's kind of similar goals here. I don't know. I think it's interesting. Um, I, I mean, the idea of sideloading is great. I, it seems like it, it is one of the big draws of Apple platforms, like the security that they're known for yeah. can't really happen if they just let anyone install any app they want. It, it, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of torn on it because I'm definitely like people should be able to do what they want with their devices. But when you're breaking down kind of what makes this platform a lot of what it is, do people really want to do this? Will there be any better apps that you can than the ones you can already get on the App Store? Well, I'm not I sure wonder, how useful this will be for people in the end and the end user. Yeah, I mean, who's going to benefit from this? The only, I mean, obviously, a user might benefit from this to a certain in in a certain way, but in terms of uh, companies, the only company I can think that would really benefit from this is Amazon. Because they essentially because have the third buy, largest like, mobile app store, don't they? Right. And I, with iPhone, uh, you they restrict on iPhone apps like what in-app purchases you can make. So, for example, you can't download like Google Books because they want you to buy through Apple Books. Um, 
and certain apps like I think like with Twitch for a while, like you couldn't subscribe in the Twitch app or it costs more when you do. That's that's common across a couple of apps. Um, there's certain apps where like you can't subscribe to a certain service in the app, but you can use it. Like you can't sign up for Netflix or Amazon Video or one of those right. in the iPhone app. So that type of stuff would be opened up. So it would be a little bit smoother of an experience, but I think the biggest people, the biggest group it would benefit is like with the, the Epic Games on the issue um, where they were unhappy about Apple having to take a cut of, of Fortnite revenue and all that. It would be popular for them. But then there was that whole debacle on Android where Epic Games only made Fortnite available as a third-party download and then yeah. there were a lot of scams around it and stuff. So, Yeah, we'll see how that turns out in due course. In the meantime, we're going to move on now to... Uh, we've got a new DIY news section at Make Use of, which has just launched this past week, Ben. And I've got a great article here by uh, Nashiket Matra. You can now 3D print a working portal turret. So this is from the game Portal. And it's been brought to life by an Arduino, some sensors, and servo motors, and then it's been assembled in a 3D printed uh, shell. It's really, really cool. Yeah, it looks really, really accurate. Um, I've never 3D printed anything. I've seen it in progress once or twice, but definitely familiar with Portal, and I, this is really sweet. Like It looks like you grabbed that out of the game and put it on your shelf. It doesn't fire live ammunition. We should be clear on this. I was going to say, yeah, can you put it at your front door, and then when people walk in that are intruders, it <laughs> guns them down. <laughs> Well, potentially you could scare them, but uh, no, they're they're not going to uh, uh, experience a uh, life-ending experience there. Um, it's by uh, Joran Daraf, and it incorporates IKEA-esque minimalist design, and uh, the the project utilizes off-the-shelf components such as the Arduino Wemos D1 Mini 3 Wi-Fi dev board uh, along with an ADXL345 accelerometer and PIR motion sensor uh, which allows the turret to go on a simulated murderous rampage upon detecting movement uh, it's really got there's a lot of really excellent sort of uh, hobbyist projects that are inspired by things in games and TV and props and what have you this is another great example of something like that and it's a I, I mean when I last worked in an office with um, humans as opposed to a distributed office uh, scenario as I do now. Uh, there, there was one guy had a sort of uh, a USB mouse-controlled uh, foam missile launcher, oh. which is very, very cool. And this, this feels like the, uh, the sensible step up from that. What did he do, like aim it, and then when he hit a button on his, in a program on his computer, it just fired a Nerf yeah. missile? that's pretty Oh, that's it. sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so that's that. You can check that out and everything else we discuss in this week's release of podcast in our show notes. Windows 11 has a newly discovered Easter egg, which will give you uh, a bit of fun. Uh, it is basically a cog that spins. That's it. A cog that spins. It spins very pleasingly. I've um, seen this cog described in many ways. One of them, I'm pretty sure, was something along the lines of adorable. I, you know, it's a graphic. Uh, it's not a cuddly pet or a small child. It's a graphic. It's, you know, it's nice, but... Uh, is, yeah, what's wrong with everyone? It's just a cog. 
I think people like this kind of reminds me of like a desk toy. Like I have a little thing here on my desk that's it's part, kind of hard to describe. It's like a silver circle, I guess. It has uh -huh. a flat bottom so you can spin it and it spins for a short time. So it's just kind of something to play with with your fingers to keep them busy when you're not typing. This kind of reminds me of that. I don't know how long I would play with it for since it's like an OS icon and not like something I'm physically feeling spin and like it feels satisfying you know but i do like little easter eggs like this you know like the classic google easter eggs or uh, like android's easter eggs every version where you can go in the about menu and play a little game i think they're fun i don't know that i would use this for more than a few seconds though or to point it out to somebody well it's not even made of chocolate so you know it's it's uh, it's, it's not for me on more serious notes a hacker group has leaked nine gigabytes of microsoft source code this is uh, quite bad because they've also got 37 gigabytes of data waiting on the sidelines and ready to be leaked. As reported by TechRadar, the Lapsus group has made the source code for over 250 Microsoft products available online in a 9 gigabyte torrent. Now of that, 90% of the source code for Bing is included, along with 45% of the source code for Bing Maps and Cortana. Uh, that alone puts Microsoft at a bit of a disadvantage in terms of Bing and how Bing works and its um, search mm -hmm. algorithms and all that kind of thing. But, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, as noted earlier, because when all this data gets leaked out, it gives hackers the opportunity to find uh, weaknesses and vulnerabilities in all of those other applications that Microsoft have released. This is a really big deal. And uh, to be honest with you, I'm surprised well, I'm not, actually, I'm not. In current terms, I'm not that surprised. In days gone by, Microsoft would have made a big fuss about this, or any company would have done. I think now they're, they're attempting to play it down as much as possible for the reasons I've just stated. Have you any feelings on this, Ben? Because this is yeah. kind of a big deal. If this, if this is exploited in the way it could be, this could be a lot of difficulty for a lot of people. Yeah, I was going to say it's kind of like, like Apple, and a lot of companies have the policy of like not outlining security issues as they're happening so it's not like you know here's a roadmap on how to exploit this kind of thing probably sort of like that where they just don't want to make a big deal about it and draw more attention to people downloading it and looking at it yeah but I, everything you said is right i mean it's having that kind of code lets people reverse engineer it and figure out what decisions microsoft made and can kind of infer other things about their other various products and uh, just having that out there when it's supposed to be private is not a good look for them and could kind of ruin upcoming changes and things like that. I mean, I guess some people would say, you know, who really cares about Bing? It's not like a huge deal or whatever, but it's that's still a, a huge chunk of a massive resource for one of the biggest tech companies in the world. So that's and 37 gigs more to come. I mean, that's a lot of data for people to sort yeah. through and pick apart. That's a hell of a lot of data. Absolutely. Uh, now, last week, I uh, actually not a few weeks ago, actually, I took receipt of uh, a box called the Yugoose UT8 Pro. It's an Android TV box, and it purports to uh, provide an Android TV experience for you. And having used it for two or three weeks, it is terrible. Um, <laughs> not so much the box and the hardware, because that's all sound, but the actual user interface is the big problem and it got me thinking about 
the, the longevity of these Android TV boxes, really, because when you've got when you've got options like Apple TV and Amazon Fire TV and Roku and all those things, to then have a Android TV alternative which doesn't even have the usual Android TV user interface as an option, I'm I'm left baffled as to what they actually thought they were doing. Now, I've got a review being published on this. Uh, It'll hopefully be in the show notes. It should go live by the time you hear this. But Ben, I mean, I don't know if you've used an Android TV box like this, but I was shocked at the lack of a usable user interface. And to make matters worse, it came with a remote control, which is a nice remote control, but it it, it just is not complete. It is not suited to the what is basically a standard uh, generic launcher that they've provided. Yeah, I haven't you I don't think I've actually ever used the Android TV platform. I I forget when I got my first smart TV, but I've pretty much just always used the apps built into that. Um, I think before that, if I wanted to watch something, I would just use like the app on my PS4 or whatever. Um, but I it sounds like the problem that you're having with I don't know about all Android TV boxes, but at least that one is kind of the same problem I felt that Android tablets have had for a long time. I mean, there's fewer options in tablets than there are with TV boxes, but like Android tablets don't really offer anything in particular. There's not that much choice in them. So like, why would you really go for one? Kind of sounds like that with the TV box. Like if it's a bad interface and there's so many other options, like what are you really getting from that? Yeah. Now, I mean, there are a kind of bunch of workarounds that I looked at. One of them was to in just install Kodi and then install all the add-ons for all the show um you know streaming platforms that you want to use which I, th I think that's probably a good option to do and then you can just set it to boot straight into Kodi when you boot up the system so that's an option the only downside with that is that everything then gets styled in the Kodi way which you might not necessarily like i tried a lot of the uh different launches that are available on the play store for android t tv scenarios but they're all dreadful now, Google doesn't make its own user interface for standard Android TVs available in the Play Store. It's had a lot of complaints about the number of adverts that are on it. However, and just as an aside, I have a TV which has Android TV built into it, and it's kind of okay. the default option. of. And basically, I use a Roku on that TV, and I've got that TV set to, to um, uh, start up into the HDMI channel that the Roku's on in order to avoid any sort of Android TV. So I'm not a fan of Android TV, but I prefer it to the user interface that was on this TV box. Now, the important thing to say here is that you can get, uh, there's a thing called GAPS, or Google Apps. Uh, these are uh, open source version of the apps that you get with um, Google devices. And you can install Android TV user interface um, through this. And it is an option that I'm considering for this TV box, but it's a massive amount of messing around in order to do that. You've basically got to root the device and then put the, the zip file onto an SD card and then boot the device into the recovery and then install it from the SD card. Now, you know, most people aren't going to know how to do that. Instead, they're going to end up with an Android TV box, perhaps as a gift, that is really ugly, physically ugly as well because it's not a nice looking piece of kit and then the user interface is really not nice either it just feels like a huge missed opportunity 
a totally second-rate product where it really shouldn't be or doesn't yeah. need to be. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. I think we've talked about smart TVs before. I think we talked about my yes, article have, about why they're like the reasons that they kind of suck. Um, and that's that's things about them that are bad. I don't think they're all bad, but the interface is usually the number one thing because. You know, on your phone, you have your finger. On your computer, you have your mouse, which are both easy to select what you want. On a TV, normally it's so much tabbing through pages with the remote, which usually isn't that great. Um, so it just kind of stinks all around, I guess. Like, I've, I haven't used Apple TV that much, but, like, when I'm at my friend's house and they have one, like, I, th I think the typing is horrendous. Like, it's, at least in most apps, it's just the whole alphabet from left to right. So when you want to get somewhere, you have to scroll left to right and, like, stop on the letter you want which is yeah. awful. So you just use voice typing. The I like my LG TV is one of those ones that has the remote where it has all that stuff with the buttons, obviously. But if you shake the remote, you get a pointer on the screen. I guess it's just an infrared sensor or whatever. And that's nice for selecting a specific item quickly. So if more TVs had that, I think it would be a little bit better because it's smoother navigation. But yeah, the default in most is just terrible. Yeah, so I mean, I guess the takeaway from this is if you're uh, looking for a TV streaming system, uh, maybe go for a recognized brand like a Roku or an Amazon Fire TV or an Apple TV and uh, steer away from uh, sort of Android TV boxes because while they're good and they're useful and you can do a lot with them, uh, the default setup is not enjoyable and it, it's going to end up being put in a drawer. Bye. Which is never what you want for your new tech. It should be exciting, exactly. not not an old junky backup. One hundred percent, exactly right. I mean, I could the amount of time I spent with it, I could have spent uh, configuring a Raspberry Pi to do pretty much the same thing. So, which is ridiculous for something that's supposed to be like a consumer, yeah, easy entertainment device. It's not like you're exactly. buying a you know a programming system. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> tips and tricks now from the really useful podcast and uh, it is now possible to install amazon app store on windows 11 uh now i, I didn't realize this was coming i knew there was uh, android apps coming to windows 11 but i didn't know the uh, amazon app store was going to be part of that that's kind of exciting i don't think i realized that either i like 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 you i knew android apps were coming but i figured it would just be like download them from the play store and extract yeah. them or something so yeah. Now, we've got a detailed guide for this on Make Use Of, and uh, we're not going to go through all the steps for you now, but I'm going to give you an idea of what sort of system you need to make this happen. So your uh, computer's processor should be an eighth generation. You don't know what that is. So it's, look for Intel Core i3 or higher than that. Uh, eighth generation, we're talking about two or three years ago, aren't we? So uh, it should yeah. be yeah, it should be from the last uh, sort of two or three years. Uh, an AMD Ryzen 3000 series or above, or uh, also a Qualcomm Snapdragon 8C. So it obviously works on uh, Windows tablets as well. Uh, it should have at least eight gigabytes of installed RAM. The recommended amount is 16 gigabytes. And the system should either uh, should be 64-bit, whether it is the traditional Intel AMD 64-bit or ARM 64-bit in the case of the Qualcomm Snapdragon 8C scenario. Uh, Windows 11 needs to be 22,000.0 or higher, and you should have SSD storage. I imagine that's kind of a uh, performance requirement. So a hard yes. disk drive is not going to work with that. It has to be an SSD drive. And it's currently restricted to the United States. I can't see that being a long-term thing. 
and you also need the virtual machine platform setting enabled and the Microsoft Store version 22110.1402.6.0 or higher. That is one hell of a version number, isn't it? I was going to say, that's very granular, more than I thought the Microsoft <laughs> Store needed to be, to be honest. <laughs> um, but, I mean, if you get to the end of the steps for installing, and it, it seems to be pretty straightforward, as in installing any other piece of software, uh, you then end up with... Uh, the screen to log into your Amazon App Store using your usual Amazon account, and then the ability to install apps from the Amazon App Store onto Windows, which is kind of cool. There's some good stuff in there, and I, Windows has a strange relationship with apps. Obviously, um, back in the Windows 8 days, Microsoft introduced the Windows Store, and they really wanted people to treat Windows in the same way as uh, people treat their iPhone or their Mac or an Android device. And as we talked about last week with the um, this whole idea of uh, telling Microsoft what your favorite app is in the Microsoft uh, Windows Store, it, it does seem to be struggling to gain traction. So I do wonder if this is kind of a, a, a secret way Microsoft has got to encourage people to use sort of apps as we recognize them on Windows as opposed to things are installed manually using an MSI or an XE file. Yeah, a desktop app. It's kind of weird because yeah. everything's an app now, so it's like kind of have to – it was modern apps and then it was store – I usually just call them store apps. But, I mean, I, I think we talked about this last week, so that's kind of still my thoughts on it. I, it, it's, it's, it's a cool idea, but it's the same thing where most – I mean, at least in these preview images, like most of the Android apps are stuff like – games that i i don't really play on my phone so i don't really need them on my computer either um and then obviously a lot of mobile apps are for services and things like that so like i don't i don't need an audible app because i can just open up the website if i wanted to listen on my pc you know so i think the idea is cool i might install it just to check it out but i can't really see myself using android apps on my computer in any serious way the only thing i can think of is if there was some simple game that you wanted to play on your computer it was yeah. only on Android, you could do it that way, but that's not me. So, Well, you know, coming from a Linux point of view, uh, because we have, uh, I mean, I'm using Ubuntu at the moment, and we have uh, the uh, GNOME store on the latest versions of Ubuntu, and, you know, all of the uh, various Linux distributions have their own kind of take on a store, and they're kind of, sorry, better than what Microsoft have managed. They're more usable. They tell you more information. They're not trying to sell you anything because obviously we're talking the world of open source software. So selling you something isn't kind of like a priority. I can just go into, there we go, into GNOME software and on the uh, homepage. Oh, there'll be some editor's picks, so like curated options. The list here I've got is the Chromium browser, which is the open source version of uh, Google Chrome, OBS Studio, LibreOffice, Anstream Arcade, Bitwarden, Shotcut, OpenRA, which is an open source version of Command & Conquer Red Alert. And if I don't want any of those, everything's categorized. It is a lot calmer and more austere than you'd get with the Microsoft Store. And it's a lot easier to use. You're not putting up with a load of nonsense and silly ratings and stuff. It does seem to me to be that whatever Microsoft conceived that to be initially was possibly a mistake, and they've not really got away from that. Yeah, I mean, it's even 
like the screenshots in this article kind of show you the issue. Like we searched Amazon App Store on the Microsoft Store to find it. And the recommended apps below it are like Microsync, upload and share files for Dropbox for $10. Or like Music Player for listening Apple Music and Amazon. Like it's a $5 app that has a one and a half star average. Like what yeah. is this garbage? Like yeah. It's, it's like hard to take it seriously because it just seems like it's full of like just spammy junk. Trust. I yeah. I would be curious since we've been talking about this from a Windows perspective. I would be curious how what percentage of Mac users tend to install apps from the App Store or from like going to a website and downloading the file and installing it the quote unquote traditional way. I would be curious to see that because I wonder if it's similar to the amount of people that use the Windows Store or if way more people use the App Store on a Mac because they trust the name App Store, you know. Yeah, that would be interesting to know. Unfortunately, we don't have the answer there, but we will move on. This is, if you've got a new set of headphones, we've given you 10 tracks that you can test your headphones with. They're all on Spotify. We've also compiled a playlist of them. I'm going to go through the list now. You have Bohemian Rhapsody Remastered. This is the 2011 version. You've got Seven Nation Army by The White Stripes. Feels Like We Only Go Backwards by Tame Impala. Heroes, the 2017 remaster by the great David Bowie. No Time for Caution by Hans Zimmer. Diamonds from Sierra Leone by Kanye West. Now We Are Free by Hans Zimmer. That one's from Gladiator. Paper Trails by Darkseid. This one made me chuckle. Rainbow in the Dark by Dio. And uh, Shine on You Crazy Diamond, all of it, the whole part, one to nine, which is kind of basically most of your day, um, that as well. And as I say, we've also provided them in a playlist for make use of. And uh, so you can grab them on Spotify or go to the uh, playlist and add it into your lists. And it's a great list. I'm really pleased with this, how this has turned out. Um I've, they're all great songs and I've had a bit of a listen and uh, yeah, it's uh, they do give you a good idea as to how good your headphones are. Yeah, it's fun to use a different range of tracks, you know, stuff with a lot of bass, stuff with a lot of treble and thing, songs that change a lot. So you can kind of hear the transition from one part to another. Um, I mean, obviously it's it's fun to try some different genres too. So you hear might like notice things that you wouldn't normally hear and whatever you like to listen to. But I think you could probably make a version of this list for almost any genre, you know, the best rock songs, the best rap songs, things like that. Quite possibly, quite possibly. As uh, regular listeners will know, I got a new phone last week and I'm quite pleased with the camera on it. But it doesn't appear in our list of the best smartphone cameras in 2022. That is outrageous. It is an absolute... Yeah, well... Um, oh, hello. Uh, anyway, so, <laughs> which smartphone camera is best in 2022? Make use of Katie Reese has been looking into this, and she has compiled a list of five awesome camera phones. Does anyone want to know what they are? I will... Be happy to hear them. Okay. I'm not sure if these are in any specific order, but uh, we can uh, basically go through them very quickly. You've got the Apple iPhone 13 Pro. You have the Google Pixel 6 Pro. The Samsung Galaxy S22 Ultra. The Google Pixel 5a. The Samsung Galaxy Note 20 Ultra. Now, 
it's very possible that the Samsung Galaxy S22 is the best of those, although the Google Pixel 6 Pro might also be a good contender. I certainly was considering a Google Pixel 5 before I bought my Nokia. And uh, if you want more detail on the specifics of those camera phones, uh, so the megapixels and the focal lens and all that sort of thing, I'm not going to go through them now because that would get a bit boring and repetitive, but you can check them out in the article show notes. It's it's cool to see the Pixel 5a on the list, given that most of these other phones are like flagship premium devices. Yeah. Um, I've not using Pixels myself anymore, as we've discussed, now that I use an iPhone, but I, I think that the, 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 the AA range of those Pixels is probably like the, the, the closest replacement to the Nexus days of that, like re- really good performance for a, a lower price, like it's 90% of the phone for half the price kind of thing. So it is nice to see that you can get a really solid camera without paying a thousand plus dollars for the fanciest new device. Well, a few years ago, long, uh, not long, in fact, before I got my um, Samsung Galaxy Tab S4, which long list, uh, long-running listeners of the release of podcast will recall, I had some difficulty with a few years ago. Uh, before I got that, I was given for review, so only for short term, was alone uh, a Pixel tablet, and I, do you know what? It was the best tablet I had used up to that point. I was gobsmacked, which is a very English term, that it didn't take off. I thought it was such a good tablet. Was it just called Pixel Tablet or did uh, it have it, like it, a specific number? Because I, I was just called the Google Pixel. Okay. Google Pixel Tablet or Google Pixel Tab. Something like that. But uh, yeah, I was very surprised that it didn't take off. And you know, there's hardly any Pixel Tabs now. And if there are, they're running, I think they're running Chrome OS, aren't they? I am not sure because I honestly lose track of everything Google <laughs> does specifically with Seriously its own, done. except for the phones. Yeah, the tablets I, I lost track of because they had the like I had the Nexus Seven, like the second iteration, um, back when seven inches was like a tablet size. Now it's like yeah. barely bigger than a phone. No, it's a phone. Um, yeah, yeah, they had the Nexus Nine, um, and then I think I lost track after that. I know that it just seemed like they would they would bring them up and then nine months later they were gone or a year later. Yeah, kind of they didn't really have like a long standing. I mean, this is a general problem with tablets, I think. I mean, there's only a couple of versions of the iPad, but, like, the names are all horrendous. Like, the sixth generation, second revision, like, it's very hard to know which exact device you're talking about when you're comparing generations of them. And we're at the point of the show where we bring you our recommendations. This might be a piece of software, a TV show, or a movie, or a gadget, or a piece of tech, or anything really that we have experienced, consumed, enjoyed over the past seven days. Ben and myself both have something to talk about. Uh, the question is, who's going to go first? I'll let you go first because you're the boss, so I want you to... Go first. And also, your recommendation is relevant to the podcast itself, right? So, <laughs> oh my goodness. Woo. He's absolutely right. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I um, We've um, upgraded the really useful podcast this week. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've been making various changes to how we produce the show. And this week is the kind of the, the crowning part of it in terms of hardware. Certainly, uh, we've taken delivery of a Rodecaster Pro, which is a basically it's a mixing desk for podcast production. I'm just getting to grips with it for this week's show, but so far I have been incredibly 
impressed. Uh, for a start off, I can press buttons to make things happen, including uh, the, sh the, the show's theme tune or uh, for the, the laughter you heard just now. I could tell a really bad joke and do this. Crickets. Uh, so, yeah, you um, you get the picture there. It also uh, records as well, volume control. Uh, ben, do you want to talk for a moment? Yes, I can talk. So you see, uh, I can turn Ben down as well, which is really useful in some cases. Uh, I'm not really. my mouth. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so it's a really excellent piece of kit. I'm very pleased with it so far. And it even has a touchscreen display for accessing various controls on it as well, which absolutely blew my mind. I don't know why, because it's 2022. I just wasn't expecting it to be so detailed or uh, even touchscreen. But, uh, yeah, it's the Rodecaster Pro. You should, um, if you're interested in podcasting, and you have been podcasting and you wanted to take it up a level or it's there's a great benefit to this which is one of the main reasons for us using it is a feature called uh, mix minus which uh, reduces echo with people calling in from uh, a different part of the internet as ben is to me tonight and um, there's no echo and over the past few weeks uh, ben and gavin as well have experienced some echo that's gone uh which will help me to yeah, which helps to reduce the editing time because that echo is a real pain to get rid of in the edit. Uh, so that, you know, I'm basically, I'm saving a lot of time with that. And, you know, having the buttons, that one, and the theme tune, there we go. They're just there now. So editing really has, uh, it can happen live and on the spot, although I did mess up the beginning of this week's show, so there will be some... Uh, the uh, show will be exported into Audacity for a little bit of a tidy up for the uh, intro. Uh, but yeah, the Roadcaster Pro is my recommendation this week. Ben, what about you? I have to say, I've been, uh, we use Roadcaster products years ago for the uh, Tech Geeks Try Stuff TGTS uh, spinoff at the site we did for a short time. And they, they were uh, pretty solid, as they're all made in Australia, I think, and seem like a good name. Yeah. So uh, from what I've used, I would agree that that's a, a solid recommendation. Uh, my recommendation this week is a fairly simple puzzle game. Uh, it's not so much one like game that's on one console or anything like that, but it's like a, a general game like Sudoku. It is called Picross, also known as Nonograms. Um, it is a logic game where there is a grid, so the simplest one would be 5x5, five five, um, and there are numbers on each uh, column and row of the grid that tell you how many blocks are filled in on that row. And there can be more than one number, and that lets you know that there is uh, a, a break in the gaps. Uh, so, for example, if you see two, one, that means somewhere on that row there's two blocks that are filled in together, and then somewhere else there's one. So you can ascertain that there's at least one space in between those, because if there were three in a row, then it'd be three. So okay. it's kind of like Sudoku where there's difficulty of puzzles, obviously. So a smaller grid is easier, of course. And then as you kind of get better at it, you'll notice patterns, uh, things that you can kind of just see and know what you can check off. Um, almost every Picross game lets you both fill in a field and mark it with an X if you, if you want to mark to yourself that you know it can't be there, which is just as useful as filling one in a lot of the time. So it's a fun puzzle game. Um, it's available pretty much anywhere. Um, in the show notes, we'll have a link to a web version. Uh, on mobile, I've used the version called uh, Picross Touch, which hasn't been updated for a few years, but it has no ads. Um, Nonograms Katana is another mobile version that has some light like elements of like you build a town and as you complete puzzles you can like see your town get built up so 
Um, one of the, if you like things like Sudoku or even crossword puzzles that are, you, once you learn the general concept, you can just try harder and harder puzzles. Um, it's a fun time. It's available. There's uh, the Switch too. If you have a Switch, there's a company called Jupiter that makes a bunch of Picross games and a few other ones. Um, and once you get a little bit deeper into it, there's even ones that have color as an element. Um, so instead of just black filling a score with black or having it leave an empty, um, you can have color that where it adds an element. And then when you finish the puzzle, it makes a little picture. Um, so you have like a little basket or an animal or something like that. So if you like little puzzles like that to kill time with and enjoy logical thinking, then there's a, a lot of ways to try Picross or nonograms. So I would recommend that if you enjoy them. Excellent. And as Ben says, that and everything else that we discussed in this week's Release for Podcast, you will find in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening this week to the show. As ever, uh, you can subscribe to us on uh, Apple Podcasts and all those other uh, podcasting platforms and get in touch with us uh, via Twitter. The details for that, again, you'll find in the show notes. We'll be back for another really useful podcast next week. Until then, it's bye from us. (laughs) 